Well, do take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, and verse 14, Hebrews 12, verse 14. <clears throat> we began looking at these verses a few weeks ago, and in our last study, we began to zoom in on these words of verse 14, strive after or pursue holiness without which no one can see the Lord. It's important that we grasp every aspect of this important text by asking ourselves three questions. What is holiness? What is it to pursue holiness? And what is it to see God? So questions about the nature of holiness, the pursuit of holiness, and the goal of holiness— well, last time you looked at the nature of holiness, and we said that holiness pro belongs properly to God. That is, God is holy in an absolute sense. He is the Holy One of Israel. The Trinity is the Holy Trinity. And we flesh that out by making three points, that the Holy One is not us. In other words, there is a clear ontological divide between God as holy and us as human. That is, in being and existence, there is no comparison, no touch point, nothing to relate either of these two existences, human existence and divine existence. Holiness belongs to God in His existence, in the infinite moral distance there is between God and us, in His majesty as the only sovereign and as the Creator. He is the Creator, we are creatures. God is not us. And yet the Holy One is for us. That's the amazing thing. God who is holy has chosen to act towards us in His holiness. So in the incarnation of Christ, the Son, the Son who is holy as God, comes into the world as the Holy One, that holy thing that is born in you, the angel says to the virgin, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He takes our human nature in order that he might make it holy. The writer to the Hebrews has said earlier on in chapter 2, verse 11, he who makes holy and those who are made holy all have one source. That is, they all have one nature, human nature. In his human nature, Jesus came. And he came to make purification for sin. He came to clean sin out of our lives. So, here's a remarkable aspect to this. The God who is above us in majesty and apart from us in His existence is also the God who in holiness acts for us, that is, on our behalf. And thirdly, we said that the Holy One is with us, or to be precise, in us and with us. The Holy One the Holy Spirit sets us apart 
and he makes us saints. Earlier on this morning, I went downstairs to speak to the children, as I do at the nine o'clock, and ask them some questions. And I, I asked them this question, what is a saint? And the answer they gave me was, one of them gave me was, a saint is a good person. Well, I'm addressing saints in this room right now, and I know you pretty well. And that does not qualify in this, in this particular instance, because to be the saints, the Holy Spirit sets apart the people of God to be God's holy ones, set apart ones for His own praise. And in order that He might begin a work in us that would push us in the direction of a relative holiness, which is the subject of the command. Pursue holiness, without which no one can see God. So, that's what I was going to talk about this morning. But it seemed to me as I was preparing the talk that there is a prior question that we probably need to ask. Is it possible for me to pursue holiness? Is that even possible for me to hear these words, strive after holiness, without which no one can see God? Because you might be tempted to despair right there, to stop right there and say, this is impossible for me because of this, this, and this reason. But I want you to reflect on this, Christian brother, sister. I want you to reflect on these things, that God has done two things in order to ensure that it is possible for us to pursue holiness. He has created a holy church, and He has called a holy people. He has created a holy church. We confess this, don't we, when we confess the creed. When we say that the full creed, the Nicene Creed, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The church is a holy church. What do we mean by that? Now, we learned the last time that if you were here and if you weren't, you can catch up. The holiness belongs to God properly, that is, in His being and His existence, that His holiness touches and pervades everything that He is, so that His wisdom and His love and His power and His goodness and everything else that there is to be found in God is holy, that is, distinct and perfect. But we also learned last time that holiness is the mode of His relation to us as creatures in creating us, in reconciling us through His Son, and in perfecting us by the Holy Spirit. God is not us, but He is for us and with us in a covenant relationship. He comes and He makes a relationship with His people. The church is therefore the sanctorum communio. It is the communion of the saints. The saints, that's how you're classified. If you read Paul's letters, he writes to the saints in Corinth. And that's how God's people are defined. Now, to understand why there is a covenant community, 
we must first of all talk about the majesty of God and the sovereignty of God. There only is a church in the world because God can choose what He does. God alone is free. He is free to act as and when and how He pleases. And so, as our confession says, our God is the God who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. There's a church in the world because God has ordained the church. The church exists by the will of God and by the work of God and by the Word of God. God creates the church right from the very beginning of history. And the church's existence lies in the free act of God's election and redemption and perfection. You know, it's a remarkable thing. Charles Spurgeon once preached a sermon in which he said, the most uh, astounding thing is that there should be a church at all in the world. Now, there should be people all over the world who have from the very earliest days, if you go back into the early chapters of Genesis, and then you catch up again in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, from the earliest days there have been people who have called upon the name of the Lord. And that fact is a testimony to the existence and activity of God in the world. If you consider for a moment the kind of world we live in, this is not a world that is in any way friendly to the God of Christianity. This world we live in is not friendly to the, the name of Jesus Christ, except perhaps as an expletive. We are surrounded by people who are very nice people, very moral people perhaps, but they are not people who are in any way leaning in the direction of considering seriously Christian faith. Why is that? Why is it in the world we live in? It's as if the world rages against God, wants to throw off what it regards as the shackles of God's authority over them, wants to push back at every point where God's law, moral law, is held by or, or in any way looked on with favor by, by people in the world. Why is that? And yet here's the amazing thing, that in spite of everything against it, in spite of having whole regimes like communism, fascism, secularism, completely devoted to the extinction and eradication of the Christian faith, that nonetheless there are billions of people in our world today who confess Jesus as Lord. The very existence of the church is an act of God, and there is no other explanation for it. Basically, humanity is broken down into two parts. There are those who are no people, and there are those who are a people. Once we were no people, but now we are a chosen race, a royal nation, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. There's this lovely phrase from John Webster in one of his books, that such a holy people exists and is preserved through time, that it does not collapse back into the alienation and hatred, and that here in the church sin is held in check and not permitted to eat away at the human fellowship 
All this lies in the hands of the holy God alone. The holiness of the church does not lie in the accumulation or aggregation of people who have common interests or who like the same things or love the same things. No. In this room, we're as diverse as it's possible to be. What brings us together is the work of God in our lives. The church exists by the Father's election. The church exists by the Son's redemption. One of the great images that's used of the church in the Bible is the image of, the ma- of marriage. Marriage is a good example because marriage is a covenant relationship in which two people covenant to one another and promises are made. So God has made a covenant with His people, though He's made all the promises, and it all comes from His side. What's interesting is that as you look at Holy Scripture, there is one book in Holy Scripture that is given over entirely to exploring in symbolic ways the theological significance of what it means for the church to have a relationship with God. That book is the Song of Songs. And certainly for the first 19 centuries of the Christian faith, it was probably the most commented on and preached passage or book in all of Scripture. It was seen as a stable text that made sense of other parts of the Bible that were hard to get your head around. Paul picks up the theme of the song in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that he may make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish before him. Why did Jesus die for his people? To make them a church and to wash them clean and to prepare them for the presence of the Holy One by making them holy. So God the Father chose the church. God the Son redeemed the church. God the Holy Spirit perfects the church. And he does that by making the church into a dwelling place for God. So you have Peter, for example, talking about the church made up being composed of living stones. Not bricks and mortar, but living stones. People made alive by the Holy Spirit. You are the church. God is building you up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the work of God in the church. Or Paul puts it like this. We are being joined together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it, for a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Why do we come to worship Lord's Day by Lord's Day? Why do we gather as God's people? Because God is pleased to make our company and our gathering a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? The Spirit of God is at work to perfect, to complete. So what is worked in us by the Spirit was one 
for us by the Son and was willed by the Father. What the Father's will, what the Father willed, and what the Son won on Calvary for us, the Spirit now takes and works into our lives. The church is the theater in which the broken relationship between God and humanity is resolved, and where the broken relationships between human and human are begun to be reconciled and brought back together, so that together we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And all of this, all that the church has, is not something that the church has earned or acquired by its own self-righteousness. It has been given as a gift to the church. So no church should be proud. No church should be proud of itself or its history or its reputation or boast about its past. No church should do that. Every church should be humbled before God that it exists at all by the will of God Himself. But God has not only created a holy church. God has called a a holy people. When I say called, I mean He has drawn people to Himself. There's many people hear the gospel. There's many people read the Bible. There's many people have Christian friends who speak to them, but not everybody comes to God. Why is that? God calls people to Himself, and His call is effective, effectual, draws people powerfully to Himself. And when He draws them to Himself, what do they do? They believe in Christ. They embrace Christ. They take Christ for themselves. And all of that is down to the work of the Holy Trinity within us, to bring us to Christ and then to begin a work of sanctification within us. Now, here's our question then. Is it possible for me to pursue holiness? And here's the Bible's answer. This is now about us as individuals. Here's the Scripture's answer in three statements. Number one, we are regenerated by the Spirit. What does regenerated mean? It means you're born again. There's a new creation. So God created the beginning. Now there's a new creation. God is creating a a new humanity. Humanity that was created fell into sin. Now there's a new humanity being created by the work of the Holy Spirit. In a moment, we're going to talk about the new covenant. What does the new covenant look like? Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 31. He says it consists of two things. One, I will forgive your iniquity and remember your sin no more. The other is, I will put my law within you and write it on your heart. When we first come to Christ, we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I will forgive your iniquity. But that's not where it stops. The work goes on. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. Ezekiel, when he's talking about the new covenant, says, I will put a new heart. I'll give you a new heart. 
I'll give you new affections. I will give you new desires. I I will give to you what you have lost by sin. I'll begin to to draw out of you. I'll reactivate those things that have been subdued by sin, those, those elements in your nature that were made good, and they're still there. Some of them are still there, and we do kind things, and, and, and even, even bad people do good things to their children, as Jesus said. But God says by the Holy Spirit, He reactivates what's there, but He also gives more grace to, to reshape the future of our lives. So here I am, I'm made as a human being, I have a human nature. The Holy Spirit begins to act upon me. He does this without destroying who I am. Thomas Aquinas puts it like this, the gifts of grace are added to nature in such a way that they do not destroy it, but rather perfect it. God's grace, His favor, His His presence, His action in our lives through regeneration, the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit, begins to renew us. I have a second quotation from Thomas. The Holy Spirit makes those to whom He is sent like the one whose Spirit He is. He sent to us He begins a work of making us like the one whose spirit He is, the Spirit of Christ. He renews us into the image of God by renewing us into the image of Christ. That's what His work is. He is at work. Here is the Spirit of Almighty God at work within you to conform you into the likeness of Christ. William Gurnell was a a Puritan and he puts it like this. Three things in, in the nature of a holy, righteous life that show that it's, the, that it's the only life. Here they are. It is a life from God. It is a life with God. It is the very life of God. That's the life we've been given in Christ. So when the grace of God begins to work in us by the Holy Spirit, it's not it's not going to work in you to destroy your nature. The work of God in us is not against nature, it's against sin. The work of God is to renew nature, but not to bring it simply back to where it was. The Holy Spirit's task is not to take us back to Eden, as it were, to what we were back in Eden when man was first made and was innocent. The Holy Spirit has begun a work to take us beyond that, to take us further than that. It was never God's intention, actually, to leave Adam in Eden the way we find him there. Uh, Richard Gaffin, in one of his books about the resurrection of the body, uses that, this kind of Im- image. He says, you know, if you go back to Eden, that wasn't the end of the story. There was an end. There was a purpose. There was an, a last thing that was going to happen to Adam. He was made... He was made a, a natural living being, but he was going to be made a, have a spiritual body that was to come. 1 Corinthians 15 distinguishes. First man was made a living being, the second man from heaven a life-giving spirit. 
there was an end point. The Holy Spirit's begun this work of taking us towards that end point to give us more than man had in Eden and to bring us on and to change us from one degree of glory into another, which happens by the Lord who is the Spirit. So here's the work of regeneration. Bishop Hanley Moe once put it like this, the Christian character is an unsinning character. This does not mean that a Christian is an unsinning person, but when they sin, they act out of character. So there's the first thing. We are regenerated by the Spirit. Secondly, we are united to the Son. We're united to the Son. We, Jesus uses the illustration of the branches and the vine, and He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you're living in Me, there'll be fruit to show that you're living and abiding and remaining in Me. It's captured by the Apostle Paul when he uses this little expression that he uses repeatedly in his writings to be in Christ, to be in Christ. We don't fathom or understand what what this means. We know it's a spiritual union in the sense the Holy Spirit makes that union real for the believer. But maybe it would be helpful for us to consider this for a moment. How could we possibly be in Christ? Well, the Scripture says that there is a sense in which everything in the created order is in Christ. The planets, the galaxies, every human being, everything. The ants that you walk upon because you don't notice them, and the animal kingdom, everything. That's what it says in Colossians. In Him all things hold together. So when I talk about Christ here, I want you to think not about His human nature that walked around Palestine, but His nature is God, and God is everywhere. There is nowhere where God is not, and God is not fully there. So everything that there is is in Him. In Him all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. In Him, all things, all together. But that's a kind of general, cosmological kind of participation in the divine, simply because the divine is, and He is everywhere. But there's a special way in which believers are in Christ. They're in Christ by way of a covenant relationship. God says to believers, I will be God to you, and you will be my people. I will be God to you. You will be my people. Kevin Van Hooser puts it like this, salvation involves more than relating to God generically as a creature. It involves relating to God covenantally in Christ. We don't understand that. Don't know how it works. We have to take it by faith as we take everything by faith. We call it a mystical union because it's strange and it's mysterious. 
And all the language we use, all the descriptors and all the metaphors we might use to try and and paint a picture of it will all inevitably break down because we're talking about something that is beyond our ability to comprehend. But just as the universe is in Christ generally, so believers are in Christ particularly, covenantally, spiritually, and are the objects of His eternal love and affection and commitment so that we were crucified with Christ, and we were raised with Christ, and we shall live with Christ. We've been united to the Son. And then lastly, we've been adopted by the Father. We've been adopted by the Father. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians. In love, the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. I said earlier that when we believe in Jesus, we're justified. <clears throat> that puts us on a, on a right legal standing before God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But God is not content with us having the right legal standing with Him. He goes further. He wants us to have a filial standing with Him. He makes us His children, His sons and daughters. He puts His Spirit into us. He adopts us. He gives us a spirit of sonship that enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus teaches us as the church to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Paul can say in Romans 8, If children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Now I ask the question I started with. Is it possible for us to pursue holiness? If we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, who's given us new affections, who's bestowed powers upon us that we hadn't before, the Holy Spirit of God has brought the presence of God right into your heart. If you've been united to Christ, so that what's true of Him is true of you by virtue of your union with Him. If if you've been adopted into the Father's family, Don't you have the ability, don't you have the power because of what God is doing present and active in your life to do what He asks you to do? Would He ask you to do something that you could not do? Would He ask His children to do anything they could not do? I close with a verse. How vast the benefits divine which I in Christ possess... Saved from the guilt of sin I am, and called to holiness. I can answer the call to holiness because of the vast benefits, the divine benefits that have been granted to me in Christ. Father, we pray that as we come now to the table, that you would enable us to think through what we've just been thinking about and apply it to our sitting down and taking these elements of bread and wine, that we might feed on Christ in our hearts by faith, that we might be strengthened by the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit 
signified by these elements on this table. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.